0: For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Eva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Tribal leaders are decrying a ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court. In the case of Castro Huerta versus Oklahoma, a majority of justices say the state has the right to prosecute non-native citizens if they commit the crimes on tribal lands against tribal citizens. Neva, where does this now leave the discussion of jurisdiction in the state?
1: Well, I mean, it's a big question, and certainly, I mean, the Castro Huerta case—I mean, uh, it upends more than a hundred years of federal Indian law, I think, by anybody's estimation. And uh, when you when you begin to take a look at uh, exactly uh, the ramifications of this, I mean, certainly tribal leaders—I mean—move forward quickly to make comments in in a very unified fashion in terms of their point of view. On on that the governor and the attorney general uh, saying that they were very pleased and excited by the uh, by the high court's ruling. But uh, I thought it was fascinating that you had Justice Neil Gorsuch, uh, who authored the majority opinion in McGirt who had this scathing dissent in this case with Castro Huerta. And I think, uh, I mean, when you really look at what he said, I mean, it was Justice Gorsuch's uh, position uh, in his writing that the court had no business basically uh, usurping the congressional decisions about what was the appropriate balance between uh, the 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 tribal, the federal, the state interests, and even went on to say that uh, the that the court was a very poor substitute, I think were his words, uh, for the for the people's elected representatives, talking about this being uh, a congressional issue versus uh, uh, versus the high court in this particular um, case, and I think uh, this this. Very scathing um, explanation. I think really was kind of uh, something that uh, the tribal leaders really pivoted off of and tried to make their points as well. So uh, obviously uh, a very highly charged issue, one that's going to continue to uh, prevail. Uh, a lot of pressure already being mounted to ask Congress to weigh in on on these issues. So I think we'll see uh, uh, we'll see not only this uh, what many described as this this onslaught of a social media campaign to get the court to move the direction that it ultimately did in their majority a decision. But uh, what goes, uh, what? Goes along after this in terms of not only just the rhetoric, but the actions that may be taken by Congress as well as how the how the states and not just Oklahoma this affects uh, this affects the country in terms of the ruling and the ramifications moving forward.
2: Ryan, well, and you know I agree uh, a lot with everything that Neva said there. One of the things that uh, to point out is that even though and we, I'll, I'll get to a moment in the, kind of the sweeping character of this decision in in terms of it you know it's dismissal of over a century plus of of uh, uh federal indian law uh, in the united states but at the outset it's important to you know point out that the fundamental findings and holdings in McGurt remain in place uh you know namely the uh the recognition of uh of the supreme court that the treaties between um, the United States government and various tribal governments in the that, that now are you know coexist in the state of Oklahoma. Um, that those were never disestablished. That those reservation lands still are uh, are there, um, and you know that jurisdiction um, is 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 recognized, and the jurisdiction of tribal courts and the federal government to have exclusive jurisdiction over the prosecution of certain crimes uh, in Indian country. So that is uh, that is undisturbed, but. As Neva pointed out, you know, dismissal of over a hundred years of federal Indian law in the United States, you know, what that does is it does call into question, you know, where where the future of this court goes with regard to the recognition of tribal sovereignty, um, and you know, what one of the things that they that the that the majority in this court did, and that you know Justice Gorsuch, uh, as Neva pointed out, you know, scathingly rebuked in his dissenting opinion, uh, is they essentially said. Uh, that rather than looking at uh, tribal governments as independent sovereigns that exist within the territory uh, of of a state, um, that you know really that the the state and the tribal government uh, are, are are more on equal footing uh, than than you know previous uh, uh, precedent in the United States Supreme Court had ever set said uh, uh, had ever said. So it is a it is a reversal of, of fortunes there and. Really, it does come down to Congress. Uh, and as Justice Gorsuch said, you know, Congress needs to step in here. He's basically inviting Congress to write laws because the Supreme Court's decision here isn't based on necessarily some constitutional principle. You know, It's based on their interpretation of acts of Congress. Right. And so it really comes down to Congress and whether or not they're willing to step in and provide some clarity here. And, and frankly, if, if the tribal governments, if we had a situation right now where the tribal governments and the state government, led by Governor Kevin Stitt, would sit down with members of Congress. I think that we could get a resolution here, uh, and and hopefully, you know, that's that's where we're headed. It doesn't look like that right now, but maybe after this election season's over with and everybody's done with their political posturing, uh, you know, they they can you know really sit down and get down to work.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting too. It was only a few months back that Congress. Um, Passed what was uh, largely a strong support not only of tribal sovereignty but tribal uh, criminal jurisdiction with their passage of the uh, vic- uh, the Violence Against Women's Act, I believe it was called. And this really what it did was reaffirm uh, the right of tribal nations to protect their people and communities. And so we have already seen in 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 just a short uh, period of time prior to this decision, Congress, um, you know, affirming this position with. with with respect to tribal sovereignty so uh, it is something that is not a one-and-done in any any Supreme Court decision as we've seen the very the variation between McGirt and now uh, Castro Huerta I mean it is uh, it is certainly something that looms larger than just one issue in terms of its impact when you talk, talk about sovereignty and you talk about uh, the hundred years, as they describe many times in in the uh, opinion, uh, the ruling that is coming down now from the high court.
2: Well, and if you if you compare this to the Dobbs case, that you know, you know, in all intents uh, overruled Roe v. Wade, um, you know, the court there you know, really went through this, you know, kind of bizarre, gym, uh, you know, gymnastics of, of trying to, you know, look through this crystal ball and, you know, think, well, what was happening in the 1700s? And, you know, what were these people eating for breakfast? And that's going to, that's got to guide what we do now. We can't possibly look at uh, that, that, you know, the, the present day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this case, you know, they, you know, just basically swept aside hundreds of years of jurisprudential history uh, in the United States and the way that the United States and Congress, uh, have regulated tribal governments and, and their sovereignty in the United States and said, oh, well, it, this is an outcome-based decision. You know, they didn't like, as Neva said, you know, the, the social media campaign of like, oh, well, we've got all this chaos and it's just, you know, we, it's this dystopian landscape in, in Eastern Oklahoma, which it's just not. I mean, the, the, the plain reality is that it's just not, but that's what they looked at. And I think that what we had here is this outcome-based decision where the court knew where they wanted to get, uh, they wanted to respond to that, and then they built this, you know, you know, you know, fictional legal landscape uh, to get to that outcome. And we hear a lot about legislating from the bench. I don't know that there's a, a case in recent memory where the court has done more to legislate from the bench and exceeded its authority and the authority that the Constitution rightly places with Congress.
1: You know, it's interesting too. I mean, I thought the comment that Justice Gorsuch made when he said that the court. Once stood firm today it wilts. I mean, and that was pretty profound. And I, he was re- referencing this uh, this social media campaign, which he which he described that was a you know a strong attempt to um, uh, to to direct or influence the will of the the court. And I think to have uh, Justice Gorsuch weigh in in such a dramatic fashion on this will have um, will certainly give pause and a great deal of consideration as these conversations move forward.
0: Supporters of state question 820 to legalize recreational marijuana in Oklahoma turn in 164,000 signatures to the secretary of state. This moves the question one step closer to possibly getting on the ballot in November. Ryan, you are a senior advisor to the Yes on 820 campaign. So how likely do you think it will be for us to see the measure before voters later this year?
2: I think it's very likely. uh, And one of the reasons that uh, the campaign turned in early, the deadline for the campaign was actually in early August. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had until early August to turn in 94,911 valid signatures uh, that the Secretary of State would have to certify before it can move on with you know, the next steps in the process towards a, towards a ballot uh, to being on the November ballot. And, you know, we knew if we turned in in early August, you know, there's still a chance of making the November ballot, but it's a lot tougher because right. you know, we, we were not really entirely sure how long the count is going to take. Uh, if you look back Uh, at history to try to be a guide whenever state question 802 the medicaid expansion ballot measure was turned in that was a constitutional amendment state question 820 just amends statute uh it's not a constitutional amendment but they turned in they turned in over 300,000 signatures uh in that campaign and that was a hand count you know so you know one by one Uh, You know personnel within the Secretary of State's office did the the very noble but you know I've I've got to imagine mind numbing task (laughs) of counting 300,000 and verifying 300,000 plus signatures against the voter rolls And you know other ways that they make sure that you know, these are legitimate signatures that took them three weeks Um, But right now the Secretary of State's office has a new counting process Uh, so the counting process will uh, actually scan the signatures uh, electronically And then, and then, of course, there'll be you know kind of human backup there to to verify. Um, So we don't know. Does that mean that we're going to be less than three weeks, more than three weeks? Who knows? But uh, even then, I think that we've got plenty of cushion in terms of timing to be able to make the, the November 2022 ballot. Neva? Yeah, well,
1: it's going to be interesting. You know, <laughs> There's even been speculation this week, the fact that uh, the, that this uh, came in early, uh, not right up against the deadline, has um, certainly far more uh, signatures, if they're valid, than mm. are required uh, to meet the threshold, that uh, could there be a last-minute push, and could the governor, in fact, put it on the August uh, runoff, uh, on August 23rd? Third, I don't, I don't. I'm not the lawyer, and I certainly don't uh, know the answer to that. But whether whether that's a possibility or certainly November, uh, I agree with you, Ryan. I mean, there is sufficient time, certainly, for uh, for that to take place in terms of the Secretary of State's office doing their due diligence and and uh, setting uh, setting the framework in place. For the governor to call an election. And then I think, you know, in reading statute, is it the next election? I mean, when, you know, when does that need to be? And certainly, I mean, you look at past history with state questions that have a high degree of interest uh, and the possibility for it to surge turnout, uh, even in a general election. I mean, the political dynamics of this become very intriguing as well, because uh, you can argue which, uh, you know, how that benefits or mm-hmm. uh, uh, compounds, uh, you know, a voter turnout process for, um, you know, either candidates respectively or parties trying to turn out their their folks in partisan elections. So uh, there are a lot of, you know, a lot of wheels turning in that in that regard. I think the other thing is. Uh, it would seem like uh, with these other two state questions that are constitutional um, uh Questions mm-hmm. that that they have a much tougher road to go. I mean, uh, in terms of you know the potential of being able to make a ballot, certainly in 2022, um, th- that process is still ongoing, as I understand it, with the signature uh, gathering and what and and all of that. But in this case, I mean, the idea that recreational marijuana may in fact be on the ballot mm-hmm. uh, in 2022 uh, at least seems a very live and real prospect, uh, based on where where that group has has uh, uh, placed themselves now within certainly legitimate timeframes to make it happen.
0: Governor Stitt's secretary of the land office says he's stepping down after allegations of self-dealing and misappropriations of taxpayer funds. The announcement from Elliott Chambers came a day after Governor Stitt called for an audit of the land office and Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister requested a law enforcement investigation of Chambers. Neva, does Chambers stepping down end the controversy for the land office?
1: Oh, I don't, not not at all. I mean, the, the controversy, uh, there are a lot of questions uh, that have come up, not only from these whistleblower allegations, but certainly some of the actions that had taken place by uh, Mr. Chambers before he, you know, while he was uh, at, the, at the helm. I mean, you know, this is one of those agencies that no one really knows much about, pays much attention to. And yet when you look at it, it oversees almost three billion dollars in real estate and other investments that the state has that support public education, so there should be a high level of interest. And you have elected office holders statewide uh, on the commission board. I mean, and and what you saw, I think, was you have two two folks running head to head for governor, uh, Governor Stitt, and uh, uh, Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister, uh, who. Obviously, are trying to uh, make sure that they are at the front, uh, leading the charge in their own, you know, in their own way to move this conversation and say we need to, we need to make sure we know what's going on. We need to have transparency. We need to have an investigation. We need to have these audits. And absolutely, I mean, given just what we've seen on the surface, there are far too many serious questions about what's gone on. And I think the fact that that uh, w- that we saw. Uh, this individual just kind of -of matter-of-factly submit a resignation and just kind of assume that he was uh, just kind of walking away. Uh, You had the governor in that meeting saying, basically, uh, you're welcome back in the locker room any time, were his uh, his words. I mean, you don't get the sense that this is, uh, again, this was his appointee. This was someone who uh, uh, came from the business community, someone who uh, uh, was his hand-picked choice, and now we'll see who that replacement is. That will be the other fact. Fascinating question to watch uh, because it comes right mired into the political landscape of uh, a 2022 general election and all that that uh, involves, and certainly legislators now uh, their their uh, interest is peaked on this and they are going to have a lot of questions and we'll see uh, how they move through the process and what they do during this interim period before the next uh, legislative session to get the answers that they want as well.
0: Right.
2: Again, one of the uh, the lesser known and unheralded uh and, and state agencies but i mean this is original to uh our state i mean it, it you know came about in the state constitution it was a prerequisite this this very office was a prerequisite to oklahoma becoming a state Statehood. joining the union yeah. mm-hmm. um it was you know the federal government had a bunch of land in, in trust uh you know we were just talking about castor I mean, I, I suppose it's you know questionable <laughs> as to you know how the united states acquired that land uh but the united states government uh, the federal government had a lot of land and trust, uh, and they gave that to the state of Oklahoma, and they said, you have to now place that in trust, and you have to manage this along with some cash that the federal government has given you as a way to you know, jumpstart a common ed system in the state of Oklahoma, uh, you know, to go from territory to state, and then just to you know, ramp up education in Oklahoma. A huge investment from the federal government, and, yeah, you know, 100-plus years later, uh, the uh, Commission Land Office is still a very important tool in funding uh state common education so uh any sort of you know scandal mismanagement of funds there uh you know deserves a lot of attention uh especially whenever it comes from leadership there Mm -hmm. uh and you know i think uh i agree with neva this isn't going to go away you can't just you know step down the governor can't just say you know thanks and then you know walk on with it or can he uh you know that's the that's the really big question here is that Uh, You had Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister in the meeting, and of course, you know, one of the central themes of her campaign, and I think will probably be themes of independent expenditures against the governor moving into the general election cycle, uh, is going to be around cronyism, self-dealing, corruption, uh, you know, incompetence whenever you put your friends in jobs that, you know, don't necessarily belong uh, in those roles. That's going to be, I think, the basis for a lot of the charges against the governor and why. Uh, he should not be re- re-elected and you know you want more and more of these issues come to light uh you know whether it's you know charges of self-dealing or incompetence you know swadley's barbecue or the whole thing um there is this question of whether or not in the minds of voters that that's going to move the needle at all uh, and and i don't i don't know that it does at this point i you know i i hear uh, you know, people tell me that there's polling that shows that these issues resonate with voters. I, you know, I hope that these kinds of things are voters are things that voters care about, and they care enough to go and you know read the paper and try to you know understand these issues. Um, but even even then, I just don't know if that's what moves voters uh, when they walk into a ballot box.
1: And I think it's important that. Much of what we're discussing here is the result of of investigative reporters who have done an excellent job of digging in when these issues have come up. I mean, we had a terminated employee, a whistleblower, who basically said, look, I mean, uh, we have the head of the CLO that has a personal investment relationship, is the allegation, uh, with a company that not only began uh, uh, this uh, company, Victorum, Victorum Capital, I believe it was, uh, that was uh, being being brought in to consult on investments. And then all of a sudden, uh, within weeks, I mean, you had the role expanded to where they were managing these direct investments on state funds. And you find that there is a question of whether or not there was a relationship, uh, financial or otherwise, between the head of the CLO and this particular entity. And so there, these are serious, uh, serious concerns, uh, serious uh, charges and allegations being, you know, volleyed back and forth, and they certainly require uh, for the citizens of Oklahoma for there to be clear answers on uh, what happened, and if if things were not properly conducted, there needs to be action taken so that people can have confidence in, in agencies, again, that we're talking, this is not an agency that is uh, minor in its scope when you're talking billions of dollars of state uh, resources land and other interests that they're responsible for managing
2: well and if you if you look the victorum contract was renewed in that same meeting uh, by a vote of three to one uh, joy Hoffmeister the loan no vote um, and so victorum the company uh, that the former commissioner had a you know an alleged personal relationship you know with this company uh, in and in a you know potential you know very troubling conflict of interest at the very least you know what those allegations show uh, and yet when they came up for a vote at the uh, at the the most recent meeting whether or not to extend the contract with victorum it was a three to one vote uh, which is is kind of you know, surprising. I, you know, I, I would think that everyone on that commission, uh, you know, regardless of where they're at right now, would say like, wait a second, we, we, we need to pause on this, um, and and have. And I know that there were questions about what happens to the assets that they manage. Uh, you know, those are legitimate questions, but maybe have answers to those questions before you walk into the meeting and be ready to say, you know, at the very least, we're going to hit the pause button. You know, we're not going to just throw you out, but we're going to hit the pause button on this contract because there are serious allegations that we need to get to the bottom of.
0: Governor Stitt removes two members of the Veterans Commission who supported his opponent in the Republican primary. The now former chairman, Larry Van Shiver, says he plans to sue the governor after he and the vice chairman were let go. Van Shiver says the dismissal was in retaliation for their support of VA executive director Joel Kinsel, who lost to Stitt in last week's GOP gubernatorial election. Ryan, could Van Shiver have a case here? Well,
2: I think that it's difficult to say that there's a, a legal case. Uh, you know, whenever you're appointed to these positions, you serve at the pleasure of the governor, and you know that's that's the way the law reads right now. And if the governor wants you to go, then you go. Uh, and now, does that mean that everybody can just you know sit and nod their head and say, okay, well that's what the governor wants, and we don't look at it? Absolutely not. And you have you know, members of the governor's own party. Uh, you know, I think the most prominent at at this point is uh, State Representative Josh West. You know, a former combat veteran. Uh, or he is a combat veteran. He's not, you know, he's, I guess once you're a combat veteran, you're yeah, oh, always a wrong. combat veteran. He's a combat veteran. A <laughs> combat veteran. Uh, and, and, you know, somebody who in the legislature is not afraid to speak his mind, yeah. even if it goes against his own party sometimes. Uh, and, you know, you have Representative West saying that this sure looks like it was politically motivated to him uh, and that there doesn't seem to be any reason to dem- to say that, uh, that these dismissals were due in any part to... Um, you know, you know the the inability uh, to serve you know veterans in Oklahoma, uh, and that you know Oklahoma. You know I think I don't know if it was Representative West or somebody pointed out in in one of the reports that I read that you know Oklahoma has this you know really great reputation among the veteran community nationwide as a, as a place to to come live, come retire to, uh, and that when you have an upheaval like this and it looks like politics get in the way of you know just the 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 nonpartisan you know delivery of services to men and women that have served our nation. Um, you know that that can really you know, stain Oklahoma's reputation as a place that welcomes veterans uh, mm-hmm. to come live and retire. Uh, so I, I, we, have, we certainly haven't seen the, the last of this. Uh, you know one of the one of the tweets from uh, uh, gentleman dismissed the general that was dismissed over Van Shiver, the, yeah. Van Shiver over the weekend uh, he said, Uh, I think one of the reporters had said, asked him a question. He said, well, you know, I'm going to go and something to the effect of, I'm going to go and enjoy my 4th of July weekend. And then next week I'm going to war with the governor. Uh, (laughs) and, and you don't want a retired general purple heart recipient, uh, you know, saying that they're about to go to war with you because (laughs) that's, that's, uh, I don't want to be in that situation. If I, if I read that tweet, it would have ruined my weekend, but you know, the governor is out, uh, you know, wake surfing over the weekend. So maybe, maybe he was able to, to enjoy himself a little bit, anyways,
0: especially with an election <laughs> coming up. Neva, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I, you know, again, I think this almost has a little bit of the same uh, feel that the governor, when he went on the uh, kind of aggressive, uh, combative uh, exchange with the tribal leaders from the beginning, and and we've seen some of this, even uh, arguably in the veterans community. Uh, you know, from the beginning of the state administration, I mean, many uh, veteran leaders uh, and leaders in some of the veterans organizations organizations have maintained that the governor has not really been engaged has not really pushed and moved on issues that were of concern to them and so there was this uh, natural kind of separation and also a natural movement toward uh, the governor's opponent Joel Kinsel, uh, in in the primary and you know I think I think it's regrettable when you have uh, when you kind of have this begin to look like it has some uh, pettiness to it if that is if that's the case the governor I I agree with Ryan it is his prerogative who he wants to serve on these boards and commissions he appoints them they serve at his pleasure and so if he does not have you know uh, confidence or has issues with these folks it is certainly understandable uh, that that there's going to be changes made but I think we had other legislators I mean you mentioned uh, Josh West but you know representative Tommy Harden came out uh, in in a release earlier this week and basically I mean here's someone who has um, uh, he's term limited has left the legislature after 12 years of service, but he served on the House uh, Veterans and Military Affairs Committee for 10 of his 12 years and was chairman for the last six. So he carries a lot of clout. He's worked well and worked uh, uh, through the years with this particular commission, uh, the Veterans Commission and other groups. And uh, he basically he basically said, look, um, I, I have some real questions here. What's going on? And, you know, even went on to say words to the effect of, you know, I guess this this is something that happens when you elect a chief executive officer instead of a governor. And, I mean, really a pretty sharp, uh, a pretty sharp jab, um, I think, reflective of the fact that he uh, made it very clear in his release that he was not happy with what was going on. And he made the point that you uh, alluded to, Ryan, about the fact that uh, when he began his service in the legislature, uh the veterans community veterans centers many things were abysmal i mean you know and much has been done to correct mm-hmm. that over the last decade and uh, it is arguably that said that Oklahoma has now one of the finest uh, track records for veterans uh, in the country. Many say number one. Um, and so to have that great advantage and yet now have this stirring of controversy that veterans are going to be hearing all kinds of versions of what's gone on and why um, is unfortunate. And hopefully the desk can settle Things can be things can be resolved. Meetings can be had, and uh, and things can move forward in a positive way for the veterans community, who deserve nothing but the respect of all Oklahomans, and certainly deserve the services and the. Um, uh, the benefits that 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 we provide as a as a state, as as well as the at the federal level, and we want veterans to be proud of living in Oklahoma, and we don't want this kind of controversy to continue. I think that would be something that not only lawmakers would weigh in and say, but most Oklahomans would as well.
2: And you know, and again, you know, like with every one of these other you know issues, controversies, scandals, whatever you want to call them, that have come up uh, around the governor and the governor's appointees or decision. Uh, to hire or fire uh, his appointees, you know, given the new power that the executive branch has that the legislature created a few years ago. Um, again, there's this, this question of, you know, is there any sort of electoral accountability here? Uh, and I think that, you know, Governor Stitt and his advisors, you know, seem to believe that he uh, is either insulated or would be vindicated in these decisions by the electorate. I mean, there's there, I don't think that there's a sense of political jeopardy here. I think that there's a, a sense of political license and, you know, he just, you know, won, uh, you know, overwhelmingly, uh, in a Republican primary against Joe Kensel, who is running uh, on a lot of these issues. And so I feel like the governor's office right now probably feels like they have validation for their current course of, uh, uh, for their current course on, on, any number of these fronts, and you know whether that can carry through to, to November. Who, you know, it's it's anybody's uh, game right now. But you know, that's to me, that's the the question here: is can can the governor do all of these things? Uh, and either, you know, feel like they're endorsed by the voters or if there's going to be any, any
1: accountability. Well, and, and you're right, Ryan. I mean, when you get 69 percent of the vote in your primary election, I mean, that is stout. I mean, the governor the governor is in a very enviable position politically that uh, whether people, you know, like him, voted for him or not, or whatever the circumstances, a majority of Republicans, an overwhelming majority of Republicans who went to the polls on June 28th said, this is our man. And we want him to continue uh and he is the nominee he will be uh running for re-election in november and we know it's going to be a very competitive spirited campaign all of these issues are going to swirl around and be part of the the conversation but when we look at the political landscape you have to believe that uh, given history and given voting propensity in general elections for uh oklahomans across the board republican democrat independent to vote uh for a strong Republican candidate uh, up and down the ballot uh, puts him in a very strong position.
0: Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org.